You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are thrilled that you're here with us. So a few years back, I was scheduled to teach uh, a group of pastors in Brooklyn. So I flew up there with a friend of mine, and uh, the host, uh, the pastor of the church where we were doing this event, said, hey, look, we put you up in the hotel uh, here in Brooklyn. It's just been renovated. You're going to love it. It's where we put all of our guests, all of the speakers and their spouses that come. You're going to love it. And so uh, we fly in. We grab a cab, we get to the hotel, we check in, we walk to the, into the room, and that's when we realized that they had booked us in this hotel's lover's suite. And, uh, and that's, that's, now it makes sense why the guy at the front desk kept apologizing, saying, I'm sorry, we only have a room with two double beds. I was so tired, I didn't even realize. But the room, just, you know, I walk in with this other very hairy 250-pound man um, that's going to be teaching with me. And uh, it's just, the room is softly lit with a view overlooking the city of Brooklyn. The shower and the bathroom were all glass. Which, by the way, I don't care if you're married or not. That's just awkward. And uh, so I said to my, my buddy, and I'm like, hey, I just need to explain how this is going to work. If one of us needs to use the bathroom, the other leaves the room. If one of us needs to use the shower, the other person leaves the room. Basically, when in doubt, leave. So uh, I had just been on a plane, so I'm like, look, we were going to go grab some dinner. I'm like, let me take a shower, and then we'll go. And so uh, my buddy leaves, and, but he forgets his room key and his ID. He leaves it all in the room. So he tries to get back on the elevator. He can't because he doesn't have a room key. So he goes to the front desk, and the guy says, what room are you staying in? And he says, oh, I'm staying in this room. He says, oh, the lover's suite. And, uh, and, uh, and he says, are you Mr. Franquist? And he says, no, but I'm staying in that room. And so the guy won't let him up, but he calls the room and I don't answer because, you know, I'm indisposed. And uh, my buddy's texting and calling me. I don't answer because I'm indisposed. And uh, so I get out, get ready. I hear the phone ring. I pick it up and it's the guy from the front desk. It's hello, Mr. Franquist. There's a man down here who says he's staying with you in the lover's suite. Is that true? And I'm like, sir, you are making this sound a lot worse than it is. And I think it's important for you to know that I am happily married to a very beautiful woman. And he's like, sir, we don't judge here. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is not a moment for judgment at all because uh, I, I do know him. And yes, he's staying here. But for the record, I didn't book this room. And I'd like, hello, hello. Anyway guy hung up on me. And so anyway, then I get to the church and I'm like, and I say to the pastor, I'm like, dude, what did you do? Uh, and he's like, oh yeah, I didn't really, that's whenever couples come in, that's where we put them. And I'm like, you see this guy, we're not a couple. And, uh, and, and so anyway, but this is the problem, right? The problem is expectations. And I had a very different expectation of what I expected when I walked into the room. The hotel had a very different expectation. And here's the thing that I've learned, and maybe you've learned this as well, that many of the, our problems in life can find their root in expectations that simply weren't met. 
Uh, we definitely see this in marriage for sure because uh, it's, it's, just, it's just how it works, right? Because I believe that weddings are usually the biggest problem in marriage because it, whether you realize it or not, ladies, your husband has never looked better than he did on your wedding day. Your husband, when he was waiting for you at the end of the aisle, he was wearing a tuxedo that was customized to fit him. And you walk down the aisle looking at this guy, and I'm like, you're like, this guy, my future husband, he looks like James Bond, right? <laughs> now you can't get him to wear pants. But back then, there was this expectation that was created. And, 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 and guys, same thing is true. Your wife has never looked as good as she did on her wedding day because that's what six hours in hair and makeup will do. And, uh, and I'm telling you this, I, I have done so many weddings in my life, and I have never once, ever, never seen an ugly bride, ever. Every bride that I have ever seen in any wedding that I have officiated or attended has been stunningly beautiful. Never been an ugly bride. I have met many ugly wives, <laughs> but never an ugly bride. Isn't that interesting? How is that even possible? And it's say, well, you know, what, how do you explain it? God does a miracle. That's the only way that I can explain how this transformation takes place. And, and here's the, listen, and here's the worst expectation that I think really messes us up. When God doesn't do what we expect him to do, or God doesn't do it in the time frame in which we want it done. So whether it's an illness that we are praying and asking God to heal and he hasn't yet, a bill that we want to see paid that God hasn't uh, provided in the way that we want him to yet, or maybe it's that special someone and God hasn't brought that person yet. Whatever it is, sometimes we feel let down and then we want to take matters into our own hands. And in our story, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and I believe this is message number 25 in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Everyone in our story that we're going to see has expectations about Jesus, expectations for Jesus, about who he is and about what it is that he is supposed to do. They have expectations about who they believe the Messiah to be and what the Messiah is going to look like when he shows up. And here's the thing that I believe is really important for us, is that if we don't get this right, this whole idea of expectations, we are going to live very disappointed lives because Jesus didn't do what we expected him to do. Here's a verse in Psalm 119 that I think is really important for us to memorize. And uh, it's, it's 10 words, right? You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good. You do good. Teach me your statutes. So when God acts quickly, it's because he is good and he does good. When God acts seemingly slow, it's because he is good and he does good. When God does exactly what I prayed for in the time frame that I want him to, it's because he is good and he does good. And when God doesn't do anything remotely like what I prayed for, as hard as this is to accept, it's because he is good and he does good. And it's the lesson that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples back then. And it is the lesson that his disciples now need to learn as well. So we're going to start in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. 
And in the morning it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, Three things we're going to talk about in relation to expectations. The first of which is this, if you're a note taker, that expectations can become a stumbling block. Now, if you were with us last time, we talked about how these two groups showed up. They were the scribes and the Pharisees who came asking Jesus' question. Today, the Pharisees are back, but they were with a group of people called the Sadducees. Now, if you weren't with us last week, I'll give you the, the, the quick uh, background on it. Uh, Pharisees, the, the name Pharisees means separated ones. And they were the group that rejected all pagan culture. They were strict adherents uh, to the law of Moses. And the Pharisees had influence as teachers in the synagogue throughout Israel. And they were uncompromising in their desire to keep the law of God. The Sadducees were a completely different animal. They had no problem making compromises as long as it meant them gaining more power in the seat of Rome. They were the official teachers of Israel. They were very tied into the power structure of Rome, which is kind of where they derived all of their influence. And so uh, they depended on Rome to keep their power. So they were not in favor of anything changing. They didn't want a revolution. They wanted the status quo to remain. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees served on a group that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a 71-member ruling council in Israel. It is the equivalent of our Supreme Court here in America. But they varied theologically. I mean, they, they barely agreed on anything. And so the Pharisees were very evangelistic, seeking to convert people to Judaism. The Sadducees were not. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in eternal life for God's people. And we're going to explore that in a future message. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the supernatural. They believed that this life was all that there is. If you followed God's law, you'd live a good life. But at the end of it, that's all there is. There's no resurrection. There's no life afterwards. That's it. And that's why they were sad, you see. And so... I know, it's a silly joke, and I'm required to tell it every time I talk about the Sadducees. So, but, so here's the question. How are these two groups that can't agree on anything, how are they together confronting Jesus and, and seem to be somewhat united on the topic? And maybe they subscribe to that Sun Tzu philosophy that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Maybe that's it. Uh, but they disagreed on everything, but they both agreed on this, that Jesus was a problem and that uh, he threatened both groups. So they say to him, they say, give us a sign from heaven. It was a popular Jewish superstition in that day that demons could do earthly miracles, but only God could perform a heavenly miracle or a heavenly sign. Now, Jesus's answer is really powerful because some, he's saying more than we realize at first glance. He isn't simply refusing. He's saying, I'm the sign from heaven that he himself is the sign. In fact, this is true even back to when Jesus was born, when Jesus' parents took him to the temple. Uh, there was this godly man by the name of Simeon that he, he took Jesus in his arms and prayed for him that he had been waiting for the Messiah and uh, he had been told that he wasn't gonna die until he saw the Messiah. And so he prays, he blesses Jesus and Mary, he gives this beautiful prayer in Luke chapter two. He says, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken again. So at the very beginning of his life, it was understood that he himself was the sign. 
So they ask for a sign, and Jesus says this. He gives them this nautical proverb, which we still use uh, in our culture. We'll say, uh, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. I mean, that's essentially what Jesus says here. And, but what he indicts them on is he says, how is it that you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times? Like these were the people that knew the Bible best. And they couldn't figure out what was happening prophetically on God's time clock. In fact, when we get to chapter 21 of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And we're going to see all these people waiting, waiting for the Messiah. You know why? Because they understood the times. And we're going to unpack this whole prophecy from the book of Daniel that describes to the day when the Messiah was supposed to show up. But because, listen, they could not understand the times and they missed out. So uh, I have a niece uh, named Sarah, and uh, Sarah serves on staff with us, and uh, she is like my fourth child, and we have always been, I mean, since she was born, her and I have been just peas and carrots, and uh, well, years ago, now she's married and all that, but when she was in kindergarten, she was going to a Christian school at the church where I used to be an associate pastor before coming and starting Calvary, and so I said to Sarah, uh, I saw her that weekend, and I said, Sarah, how about I drive up to your school this week and we have lunch? And uh, I'll bring McDonald's and we can have lunch together. She said, oh, that sounds great. And I said, so what time do you have lunch at school? She says, I have lunch right at noon. I said, okay, perfect. So that week, get permission from her mom. Her mom comes to school and says, hey, your uncle's going to bring lunch. And so I was in the area for a meeting. And so I, sw- I swing by McDonald's, pick up two meals. I get to the school and find out that Sarah has lunch at 11 a.m. And um, they said, and then I talked to the teacher. She's like, oh, yeah, we have lunch at 11 every day. But, you know, since you're here, take her out of class. You can spend a little bit of time with her. So anyway, I, I take her out of class, and we sit down in the cafeteria because other people are having lunch. And, uh, and she's, we're just talking, you know, whatever you talk about with a five-year-old. And, uh, and, and then as we're talking, I'm like, Sarah, what, you told me that you have lunch at noon, but you actually have lunch at 11. And uh, wh- why'd you tell me noon when it was actually 11? I could have been here earlier. She says, oh, Uncle Bobby, I'm so sorry about that but I think I understand what the problem is. I said, what's that? She says, I think the problem is that I'm five and I don't know how to tell time. <laughs> and, uh, okay, and that was that. And it wasn't a total loss because I ate both McDonald's meals. And, um, but now, <laughs> now here's the point that Jesus isn't telling them you can't tell time like you don't know hours and minutes. There's actually a specific word in Greek for that. It's this Greek word chronos, where we get our word chronology. The word that Jesus uses is this Greek word uh, kairos, which refers to seasons of time. You see, we don't live, and I've talked about this in the past, that we don't live in a, uh, in, 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 in a climate where we have seasons. We just have variations of one season, right? It's hot, hotter, surface of the sun, and in that order, Right? But if we did live in an area that had seasons, we would start to see, you know, the seasons don't change all at once. The seasons begin to kind of flow one into another. So the leaves start turning to tell us that summer is gone. Trees lose all of their leaves to tell us that winter is around the corner. When things start budding again, you realize that spring is here. And so these religious leaders just couldn't figure out what God was doing. And that's why In the following verses, we're not going to take time to read it because we'll cover this later in chapter 23. Jesus tells the disciples to beware of the hypocrisy of the the Pharisees and and the 
the Sadducees, but he gives them at the end of verse 4, he says, I'm only going to give you one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. And this is the second time he brings that up. If you're with us in chapter 12, he had brought up this idea that the, the sign of Jonah is the one that is um, this, 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 this idea referring to his own death. And so he brings this up for a couple of reasons. First, that uh, this is what's going to happen to him. As Jonah was in the, the fish for three days, he's going to be in the heart of the earth for three days. And secondly, that the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, if you were there... Uh, or if you've read it, I don't know if you were there, I'm guessing if you were there, you'd have to tell us about it. Um, but then uh, <laughs> tell us how you, tell us your secret. Is it essential oils? Is that why you're still here? And, uh, but <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Now I'm going to get essential oil salesman emailing me. Um, so, but listen, Jonah's, Jonah's sermon, it was horrible. And if you've read it, it, it listen, I, you know, I, I spend hours trying to put something together that people might want to hear. And uh, Jonah shows up. He says, 40 days, and if it's going to be overthrown, drop Mike, peace out. That's it. And everybody responds. It's incredible. Everybody's like, this is amazing. No, no, not because it was an amazing sermon, but because the Assyrians worshiped this god named Dagon that was the fish god. When they hear about Jonah being vomited out of the fish and he's, his skin is all bleached because of the gastric juices that he's been in, um, that was the sign that changed them. This is, and this is an important point, is that this is why the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that changes everything. It is the truth that Christianity is built on, the resurrection. This is why in the epistles, the thing that the, the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament epistles are talking about, they're always talking about the resurrection. When they go out preaching to different cities, they're talking about the resurrection. And listen, this is important for us because the only thing that has to be true for Christianity to be true is the resurrection of Jesus. Even, uh, listen, even if we didn't even have the Bible, Christianity would still be true. For the first 300 years of church history, by the way, the followers of Jesus didn't have um, a Bible. And honestly, mo mo the com common people didn't have a Bible until the 15th century. It was in 1450 that the printing press was invented, and by the way, uh, there was only 187 copies of the Gutenberg Bible that were made. It was printed in German. And um, so between that and the Protestant Reformation is what put the Bible in the hands of people. But when people say things, and you'll hear, you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. That's why I don't believe. And every time someone says that to me, I feel like someone has just given me raw meat. Uh, like, okay. And, and so, and let me just tell you, one of the things that we do as Christians is that someone will say that, well, I don't believe the Bible is full of contradictions. They're like, well, let me tell you something about the Bible. Whoa, whoa, slow down, cowboy. They've just made a claim. Let them now substantiate their claim. And so, because as Christians, we are so quick to talk about everything we've learned. Like, there's a moment for that. Slow down. And so, what, I, and I've done this so many times, and I love when it happens here at church, because I, I always have my Bible, and I'll, they'll say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. I'm like, is that right, really? Um, could you show me one? And, uh, and what, one of the things that I love is every time I've done this, you know, um, non-Christians, uh, they're, they're, they're so scared of the Bible. And, um, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about other people. Um, and, uh, but sometimes, you know, people that are just a bit hostile, and because uh, you seem like a fun-loving people, but, uh, but those who aren't, I was like, yeah, could you just show me? I was like, whoa, hey, I'm like, oh, just here, just, oh, come on, man. And uh, it's like, dude, what do you think is going to happen if you touch it? It's not going to sizzle. Well, then again, I don't know where you've been, so who knows? Maybe it might. Depending on what you've done, it might sizzle. Uh, but what happens is, and, and the reality is, is that, and I say that jokingly, but 
But because they don't know of any contradictions, that's just a thing that people say. Because they picked it up from some college professor who's still mad at his parents for taking him to a boring church when he was a kid and he hasn't figured out. Like, dude, you just need therapies. You can get over 40 years of being mad at them. But Christianity isn't the, the problem. And, uh, but listen, and the point is this. The, the thing that's needed for Christianity to be true is the thing that Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees, the sign of Jonah. And the thing that is needed for Christianity to be true today is the exact same thing, the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus. And so if somebody wants to press on if Christianity is true or not, this is where you go. This is where you decide. It, because the resurrection of Jesus is more substantiated than just about any other um, historical act of antiquity. This is why people don't want to deal with it because they don't have an answer for it. Well, verse 13, and here's how, this is when it gets really interesting. Um, they just, he decides to leave the region. Look what it says. It says, then uh, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, uh, or others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you is that expectations can blind me to the truth. Now, if, uh, if you will allow me to just kind of nerd out for a minute on just geeky Bible stuff, this is going to set the scene for you. And uh, so if I can see the map, if you don't mind. So the disciples are here in Galilee, and they decide, you'll see the arrow, they decide to go north, to the very north of Israel, to a city that's called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is only 25 miles away, but it was dominated by pagan practices. It's also uh, right at the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon, and this, these are the headwaters of the Jordan River. So this is kind of where the Jordan River begins. It feeds into the Sea of Galilee, which feeds into uh, the Jordan. So this area was dominated by pagan practices, and there were no less than 14 pagan temples in the city of Caesarea Philippi. In the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, if you, you know, read the books of the kings or whatever, and you read that uh, they would set up what were called the high places, uh, this was usually up here at the very north of Israel, and they would set it up to in the image of this god named uh, Baal or Baal, and this is a picture of Baal. This is, um, this is about a four to six inch statue uh, that when I was in Israel, uh, I went to the Israeli Museum, and they were doing a Canaanite exhibit, and they had all different sizes of these. And you saw this. This uh, typically, uh, he's supposed to be holding a lightning bolt. Uh, unfortunately, these things break off. You know, it's just poor construction. Just nothing lasts a couple thousand years anymore. So anyway, so they're supposed to have a lightning bolt here, and he uh, Baal was the god of rain, thunder, and agriculture. And this was important when there was a culture that depended on the ground for sustenance. And sometimes God tested his people and there would be a famine. And, and, and it was to see if the people would, would, would trust him even in, in difficult times. Well, sometimes they did. And sometimes they started uh, making altars to Baal. And, uh, and once again, in an agrarian culture, when you wanted, you, when the ground was your life and what it produced was your career and what it produced was money for your family to be able to live. Well, eventually the, 
pagan Canaanite gods uh, gave way to the Greek fertility gods. And then uh, one in particular whose name was Pan, P-A-N, was the main god that was worshipped there. We have a picture of Pan. And uh, Pan was... um, uh, the Greeks renamed the city of Caesarea Philippi Panius in his honor, and he had the, the upper body of a man, the, the lower body of a goat, and he played the flute. If you've ever heard of something called a pan flute, there it is. So now years later, when the Romans conquered this territory, Herod Philip, who we've talked about, um, rebuilt the city, renamed it after himself Caesarea Philippi, but people continued worshiping Pan. Now, They believed that Pan lived in the caves. I told you it was at the base of this mountain. So they believed that Pan lived in the caves. But because of all of this pagan activity that had been going on for more than a thousand years in this area, Jews avoided this altogether. And because of all the pagan temples, they believed that, many Jews believed that Caesarea Philippi was the very entrance to hell itself. And so None of the disciples were, were um, very excited about being taken there, and I can assure you that none of the disciples had ever been there because people avoided Caesarea Philippi, and uh, I'm guessing when Jesus like, hey, we're going to go north, we're going to leave Galilee, like, all right, let's do a road trip, and uh, they're like, hey, we're going to go to Tyre like we did, we've got to hang a left, like, no, we're going, we're going north, and then, you know, whatever, the sign's like, Caesarea Philippi, next right, and like, hey, this is where we're going, and the guy's probably freaking out, like, no, well, do, Jesus, do you know about this place, and But there's an important thing that he wants to tell them. He wants to reveal who he is. And then he wants to reveal the power that he has because it's so vital for people to know him for who he really is. And he wants the disciples to know who he really is. So last week, I uh, officiated a wedding for a a great couple in our church. Uh, And the wedding was up in Stewart. So my wife and I drove up the day before. And uh, when we were checking out of the hotel on Saturday to drive back, because I needed to be back here for, uh, to teach on Sunday. The girl at the front desk, who we had met when we were checking in the day before, she says, has anybody told you that you look like an actor? And I said, yes, I get confused with handsome actors all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and mind you, this girl is so nervous. I mean, she's shaking. Uh, she says, because you really look like this actor from a TV show that I watched when I was a kid. Now, this girl was like 20 years old. So she says, when I was a kid, that could be two summers ago. And uh, so... Uh, but she says, you know, you really look like the dad on the show. Are you sure you're not him? And I said, I said, listen, um, if I were him, do you think I'd be using the name Bob Franquiz as an alias? And, uh, and she says, well, you know, you, you really look like the dad on the show called um, uh, No Ordinary Family. And, uh, and so my wife says, she says, Bob, just take a picture with the girl so she calms down because she's about to pass out. And I said, no, I don't know who the dad is. Maybe he's not good looking. And so, um, and I said, look, I said, I'm not him, but I wish I was. And I said, but I think here's the other thing that's important for you to know is that I'm going to look this guy up. And if he's not super good looking, I'm coming back here and we're going to have words. And, um, and, and then I left. And then um, my wife, uh, so I start driving back home and my wife starts looking it up. And, and so here's the family. And uh, I was so insulted. And I'm like, Michael Chiklis? That's who they thought, that's who this person thought I was, Michael Chiklis? And, um, and, and it's like, you know what, just because just I'm bald, uh, you know, we, we look alike. And, uh, and if you, by the way, if you're going to compare me to a bald guy, at least compare me with like Bruce Willis. And, um, and so anyway, 
And by the way, so that's Michael Chiklis. Here's Michael Chiklis a little uh, sooner. And then, and here's the part. This is the part that really bothered me, is that I started doing a little research on Michael Chiklis' life. You know why he's wearing a Boston University? Um, he's wearing a, a BU uh, uh, sweatshirt? It's because it turns out Michael Chiklis and I grew up 20 minutes from each other in Boston. And I was so bothered by that. And then, um, if you've ever seen a show, Michael Chiklis was the star of this show called The Shield that was on years ago, if anybody remembers uh, uh, that show. And, well, at 10 o'clock, everybody remembered that. So um, maybe you guys don't own a TV. But so anyway, you guys want to work on that. Um, but anyway, my brother, I have an, I have an older brother uh, that's an actor, and he was on an episode of The Shield. And that bothered me even more. Like, now this guy has interaction with my family. And so my wife, this entire time, has been laughing and keeps pulling up pictures. She thinks this is the funniest thing that she has ever, uh, she's ever heard because my wife used to watch this show where Michael Chiklis was the star. And here, this is the picture. She's like, she thinks you look like the commish. And because my wife watched a show called the commish, which is a pretty good show. I mean, I hate it now, but it was a pretty good show. And uh, so now she's telling everybody, so you're gonna, there's this girl, and she thought Bob looked like the commish. And it's so, anyway, and then people wonder, like, I wonder why Pastor Bob has low self-esteem. This is why. <laughs> this is it. And by the way, and we're driving home, and I'm like, of all the members of the Fantastic Four to compare me to, and maybe we could see that picture. Here. <laughs> That's Michael Chiklis. And now I am just, I am mortified by what I'm, ha what's happening in my life right now. And I'm like, you know what? If she had compared me maybe to the Human Torch um, slash Captain America, I would have taken the picture with her. But now, never. We're done. Now, <laughs> maybe I take things too seriously. And um, can, we, can we remove that? It's not, the fan, it's not the Fantastic Five. Um, so I, I appreciate my daughter's the only person who got that joke. And so she's the only person who has the level of sophistication of some of the humor. So it's, gonna, it's all going to be all right. So now Jesus is going to ask two questions about who he really is. He's going to ask them, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Now they're going to answer... Uh, in different ways. Uh, one says, hey, some people say you're John the Baptist. And we've heard that. Herod Philip, when he, after he killed John the Baptist, heard about Jesus and said, yeah, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then there were other people that thought you might be Elijah because there's a prophecy in the book of Malachi, the very last book and the very last chapter of the Old Testament that talks about that Elijah would return before the coming of the Messiah. And Elijah was a worker of miracles so they thought maybe this is Elijah who's, who's preparing the way for the Messiah. Others thought that he was Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And uh, it's, it's an interesting book to read. Do you know this? Jeremiah preached for more than 40 years and never had one convert. Never had one person that heard the preaching of Jeremiah and said, I need to change my life and come back to God. And so, well, because of that, he... Um, but he cared for people, and people related him to Jeremiah because they saw Jesus, that Jesus was always moved with compassion to people who were hurting, to people who were suffering. There's also this belief that some Jews had that when the 
Babylonians came in in 586 BC and, and destroyed the temple that, and conquered Jerusalem, that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it in Mount Nebo, which is just on the other side of the Jordan where uh, Moses is buried. And uh, that people believed, there were people who believed that Jeremiah would return, bring back the Ark of the Covenant, and return Israel to its former place of glory. So there's all these kind of rumors and theories out there as to who Jesus is. And then Jesus asks the most important question that anybody could ever answer, and that is, who do you say that I am? And Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And by the way, and this is important, Christ is not Jesus' last name. And, uh, and that's why people try to curse. They, think, they say things like Jesus H. Christ. And I'm thinking, that's not his name. Like, Jesus' last name was not Christ. Mary's last name was not Christ. Joseph, like, are we having the Christs over for dinner this week? No, that's next week, honey. We're having Judas over for dinner this week. You know, uh, and so, you know, but, but Christ is a title. Uh, Jesus' name was uh, Yeshua ben Yosef, right? J- Jesus, uh, be- the son of Joseph. Christ is a Greek word translating the Hebrew Messiah that means anointed one. So when Jesus says, who is the son of man, Jesus doesn't just say the Messiah. He says, you are the Christ, uh, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you're Peter, and Peter means stone. But upon this rock, Petros, this giant stone, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. Now, here's what you need to understand. And people have misunderstood this for so long. Um, Gates are defensive structures. You don't bring a gate to conquer a city. You have a gate around a city to protect the city. So what does that mean when it says that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against us? It means that the church will keep advancing and the power of hell will not be able to stop it. The church is going to be built on the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah and all of hell is not going to be able to stop it. And listen, when you are doing the thing that God has called you to do, It may get difficult at times, but all of hell is not going to be able to stop. That's why what the devil seeks to do is always discourage. Because the devil can't stop you personally. I mean, he can't, you know, the gates of hell just can't prevail. But he can try to get you to stop you. If he can discourage you and make you quit, then his work is done. But see, sometimes we have this expectation that what God has called us to do is always going to be easy, and it's just not the case. And sometimes when we think that we miss out on what God wants us to do and we live a life of disappointment to ourselves and to all that could have taken place. You know, there's this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30 when um, David's enemies go into this city and they take David's family and they take all the children of the city And David comes in and he's too late. He gets there after the battle has been lost. And I want you to read what it says in your notes in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Listen, sometimes there's nobody around to discourage you or to encourage you. There's always people around to discourage you. Um, there's never, there's never any job openings that are left on the discouragement side. Uh, there's always job openings on the encouragement side, but sometimes there's nobody around to encourage you and you need to encourage yourself. Sometimes you got to just tell yourself what's up. And, uh, 
man, I had this happen a while ago, and I, I, was, I was down, and I had been down for a few days and about some things going on at church, and it was affecting me. It was affecting how I talked. It was affecting how I listened. It was affecting how I did. I just had this sour disposition, and I remember I was, and I could show you the spot where I was driving. It was, an, it was, a, in, in, um, it was during kind of the winter, which is what, the third week of January um, here, and so I was driving with the windows down, and I was at a red light, and I I, I was, and I just said, I was like, Bob, snap out of it. You're a Christian. God is for you. If God is for you, he could be against you. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers them out of it all. So cut it out because you're making me crazy with all your moping around. Now, and by the way, I, I was at a red light. And so I had turned down my, um, my visor and I have a mirror there and I opened the mirror so I could, I knew who I was talking to. So I'm like, So I'm talking to myself about this, and, uh, and, and th- I didn't realize, I get, I get done, I feel so much better. And I look over, and the guy in the next car <laughs> is watching as I'm yelling at myself in the mirror. And he's just, you know, and, uh, and, I, and I, I didn't even know what to say, and I was just like, it's cool, man, listening to some old school rap, West Coast, and... Uh, <laughs> And the light wasn't even, it wasn't even green. I just drove off and I had to get out of there. I had to get out of there. And I, hopefully we've never met again. And uh, listen, I'm telling you this. Everybody is like, well, you know, you got to listen to your heart. The problem is sometimes your heart thinks very stupid things. And you've got to start maybe speaking some sense to your heart so that your heart starts thinking some different things. And we've got to keep pressing forward. Listen, because if, this is, if what Jesus is saying is true, and we believe that it is, then the gates of hell can't stop you if you're doing what God has called you to do. Well, look at what he, he goes on, and he says this, and this is how we're going to wrap it up. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Last thing. And that is that expectations can make me miss the point. Think about what keys do. Keys open doors or lock them. Jesus is building his church. By the way, this is the first time that the word church is mentioned in the Bible. And Jesus is inviting his disciples to be part of it. He's inviting his followers to be people who open doors for the kingdom, for others, or at times even close them. And listen, the keys always symbolize power and authority. When you have the key to get in somewhere, you have some level of authority to be able to unlock the door. When we preach the gospel to people, when we share about God's love and grace, we're opening the doors of the kingdom to those who would want to come in. But there's also times where we close the doors because we say, listen, we go this far and no further. Back in the 80s, 42nd Street in New York City was the hub of all things pornographic and sexually perverse in the world. It was all centered there, 42nd Street, New York City. But a group of Christian businessmen got together who live in New York, and they said, how is it that we have allowed this to happen in our city? We're believers. How have we allowed this to take place? And these guys got together, and they bought every building on that block. And, and they had to sit on them. And this was awkward because they were like, they bought them and then they had to sit on them because there were leases that needed to be honored. But every time one of those leases ran out, they kicked one of those porn businesses out and used it for something different. And in 2002, 
the New York Times ran a story, and you can Google it and find it, that the last porn shop on 42nd Street had closed down. And here's why. Because his people closed the door and said, this far and no further. Jesus is inviting us to do things that matter to leave an impact for eternity. And we don't have to be afraid because the gates of hell will not be able to stand when the church is on the offensive, taking ground for the kingdom. But here's where it begins. We've got to deal with the gates of hell internally. We've got to deal with the stuff in our own lives that keeps us from full commitment to Jesus. And that means taking radical action. Some of us have emotions that are totally out of control. And anger is ruling our lives and destroying everything that it touches. Listen, that is hell setting up a gate in your life. And, and listen, here's what Jesus says. You've got the key to open the door and get it out and lock it so it never comes back in. Now, that may require some help. That may require counseling. That may require um, to, to knock down the gate. But what's the alternative? To leave it and let it ruin your life? No way. Some of us, listen, we, there's, we've got marriage problems and we don't know how to fix it. Here's where it starts. Here's how you start fixing it. You decide that you're going to do whatever it takes for things to get better and to have a desperation that you will do whatever it takes to fix it because you have decided that the gates of hell are not going to live at your house anymore. And the gates of hell aren't going to win in your family. Listen, some of us, if we're being honest, we have made everything else a priority in our lives. And then we wonder why there's no spiritual power and we wonder why we're not seeing God work. And, and listen, if we will deal with the places in our lives where the gates of hell want to park, we will begin having victories in the place where uh, maybe in, in your marriage where the gates of hell want to park. Like, no, you ain't getting it with me and you're certainly not getting it with, with my family. And listen, it'll begin to transform you. And as it begins to transform you, it begins to transform your marriage. And then it begins to transform your family and it begins to transform your legacy. My friends, that's how the world changes. The world changes not when we have this grandiose idea and we're gonna, no, no, no. It begins with one person deciding that the gates of hell don't get to take any more ground in my life anymore. You don't get to live in my home anymore. You don't get any of my kids. You don't get any of my family anymore. It ends here. And listen, when enough of us stand together and say the gates of hell, no further, you're out of here. You know what happens when enough of us stand together? All of hell starts running. Isn't that where you want to live? Maybe somebody, that's how we want to live. That's how we transform the world. It starts with us today, right now. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. Thank you for the authority that you've given to us that the gates of hell just can't prevail where the church is advancing. So God, help us in that. Do that work in us, through us. Help us to see ourselves be transformed by your spirit so that our homes can, our kids can, our families can, our legacy can, and that this world can be transformed by your love and grace. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. 
And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.